So here we are outside the Science and Industry Museum. I know. It's got a sort of a modern cafe and a modern entrance, but we are really surrounded by, I was going to say we're surrounded by old Manchester industrial buildings, but right in front of us is the, the, the soaring monolith of the Beetham Tower. <laughs> Have you been up there? I've never been up there. No, Beetham Tower is is a kind. Of, there's a Hilton Hotel halfway up, and and lots of flats. It's uh, it's not it's it's not the the best uh, example of it's modern just, architecture, is it? It's really, it's just a big slab of grey, and the last thing Manchester needs is more grey, especially yeah. today, where the where, where the clouds, the grey clouds, are just sort of gloomily trudging across the sky. Yeah. The the autumn leaves are being battered from the branches by the uh, by the rain. Uh, <laughs> We've got to check the app. It's 100% rain all day, isn't it? Good grief. It might well, be 101% now in Manchester. You always have to go to 1% yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. But down there we can see the sort of industrial relics, the bits of an old steam engine and everything. Yeah. And a rather lovely building, which is the Lower Campfield Market, which used to be the Air and Space Hall here. Have you been in there? Ever? Yeah, I've have been you? in there, yeah. And uh, they used to have a lot of planes and things in there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, um, uh, but no longer. But, yeah, you can see kind of, you know, towers rising. It's like Gotham City, Manchester in part now, it isn't it? It is, it, it but, is, isn't um, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the uh, the Science and Industry, uh, uh, you know, museum does have some old buildings, lots of development going on at the moment to preserve the old buildings. But we're standing in front of a rather modern facade and yeah. a modern entrance hall. You come through about with these modern towers and everything and you go through the modern entrance into the Science and Industry Museum. Have you seen this? Museum, but, if you stand outside yeah. here, you've got, like... This is really old, isn't it? Yeah, so there you go. So you've got the modern so facade on it on the, on the old warehouse. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, 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 it's sort of linking the modern Manchester and taking you through into the past, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. brilliant. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to be here, and it'll be great to get out of the rain. Absolutely. <laughs> Hi, I'm the broadcaster, musician, glamorous international celebrity and influencer Mark Radcliffe. And I'm his friend and bandmate Paul Langley. And we're here at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester for... Meet Me at the Museum. The first thing that strikes you is it's a huge space, isn't it? Huge. Really huge. Yeah. And you've got kind of metal posts, sort of girders that look like the structure of an old mill. Or or bonded warehouse or something. Yeah. So, and, and immediately you come in, you're struck by several things which screen Manchester. Right in front of us is a beautiful old vintage Rolls-Royce. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. Rolls met Royce in the Midland Hotel in Manchester. Did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't in, know uh, Yeah, about sort of half a mile away, you know, like five, ten minutes walk away, we could be where Rolls met Royce. So we've got a Rolls-Royce, but it's under a big sort of, like, um, um, neon installation with loads of TV screens on it. Which, it's bizarre. So, so then it, once again, you've got the juxtaposition of the of the of the old and the new Manchester. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, let's go in. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Science and Industry Museum. Thank you very much. We have our national art passes with us, which we're very pleased with. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's free to enter the museum, yeah. uh, but we do have uh, a charge for exhibition on at the moment, Use Hearing Protection, the Early Years of Factory Records. Yeah. And you get 50% discount with that with your national art pass. Great. Right. OK. Well, I'm glad there's something we would have had to pay for. Then we can max out Absolutely. our national art pass. We'll hit we? the shops. We'll <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we've both been before, haven't we? We have, but really? not for a long time. Not for a long time, no. So, um, uh, we're... Um, would you call yourself a mank? Totally. I'm a Boltonian, really, but I'm an adopted mank. I've been here since uh, 1976. I don't even drink Yorkshire tea, Mark. <laughs> well, quite right, too. But, um, yeah, it's been an important part of Manchester, the Science and Industry Museum. So it's great to be back and see what's happening, but particularly because of the Factory Records exhibition. Can't wait. Now, you and I are both Factory Records aficionados and, uh, and lovers of the music. So I was there right at the beginning working at Piccadilly Radio doing my radio show when Joy Division and all those guys were making those records. Yeah. You came a bit more in the Factory dance era about 10 years later, didn't you? I did. And yeah. in contrast to me, you sort of had a record deal with Factory, or at least with a Factory offshoot label, Yeah, it was Rob's Records. Rob um, Gretton, who was the manager of New Order and Joy Division. Yeah, it was good, actually. I mean, it all, that all came about when Rob was looking for talent and just... He didn't find any, clearly. Clearly. And then, <laughs> and then I remember I was sat in the Factory offices with my brother, who was a resident DJ there, and I was just humming in this tune, and I convinced him that stick me in somewhere where I could write it all down. And bizarrely enough, he, we, we did it, and he put it out six months later. What was that called? That was called, it was by Racket. And the reason it was called Racket, because it made a lot of it. Yeah. And Not because you were keen on tennis. N- <laughs> far from it. Yeah. It got picked up in Belgium. It did okay, actually, for uh, somebody from... Were you big Manchester. in Belgium for half an hour, then, in um, the mid I'd say more like ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Thoroughly enjoyable and really weird to see it from the inside out. So here we are at the Use Hearing Protection Exhibition, the factory yeah. exhibit. Does the uh, sort of yellow desk, bright yellow desks, the factory logo of the juddering man with his fingers in his ears. Um, so it's all uh, neon tubes and um, perspex, yellow, black. Does this in any way resemble the old uh, reception of the Hacienda? Yeah, it's just as cold. It is just, <laughs> it is just as cold. This is the perfect day because the museum's not open today and so the heating's not on. So it is freezing as the Hacienda in the early days, which was Factory's Club, of course, yeah. built in the old yacht showroom, um, <laughs> uh, was freezing because it was a cavernous space. So Factory Records was founded in Manchester in 1978 by Tony Wilson, who was a newsreader on Granada Television, which was the uh, independent television station in the northwest of England, um, with his mate Alan Erasmus, who was an actor who managed bands, and also Peter Saville, who was a graphic designer, with Rob Gretton, a DJ in local clubs, who went on into band management, famously managed Joy Division and New Order, and Martin Hannett, who was a uh, legendarily innovative uh, producer of music. And so uh, that was the basis of Factory, and they went on to make lots of great records, launched uh, lots of successful bands, including Happy Mondays and people like that, and um, uh, created the legendary Hacienda Nightclub, which in its early days was terrible. Should we go and have a look, then? Definitely, let's have it. Stopped here by a blue poster... Uh, for the Sex Pistols and Slaughter and the Dogs Lesser Free Trade Hall gig, 20th of July, 1976. This was an absolutely vital gig, wasn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, this is where... Uh, it, no one from Factory appears on this bill or had anything to do with putting it on. Yeah. But Barney and Hookie were there from New Order, from Joy Division yeah, and New Order. Yeah. And Wilson was there, wasn't he? Yeah, and it's Malcolm McLaren's presented it. Present, yeah. The Sex Pistols presented by Malcolm McLaren. 
Tuesday, 20th of July, 1976, from 7.30. Tickets, £1. <laughs> <laughs> if only. If only. So, yeah. Great so, poster as well. Really great poster, you know. And so uh, that, was, that was almost like it's nothing to do with factory, but it is. Yeah. Because all, uh, a lot of the central players were at that gig. Yeah, and that yeah. gig was a catalyst for, uh, for them going. I'm also immediately drawn to this a very famous guitar in a glass case, which is a Vox Phantom Mark VI um, electric guitar played by Ian Curtis of Joy Division in 1967. I'm not quite sure how good a guitarist Ian Curtis was. I've never even seen him play the guitar. <laughs> now, you're a guitarist. Is that a good guitar? Well, it's Vox. It's a sort... This is... I don't know how... Well, how would you describe the shape? It's like a white lozenge or something, isn't it? Yeah. But people who know Joy Division with it. The thing that strikes me about this guitar is how many knobs and buttons it's got. And it looks like <laughs> a really complicated guitar to play. For someone like Ian, who was a tentative guitar player, yeah. this looks like a really bad guitar to have chosen. But it <laughs> looks great, doesn't it? Yeah. I saw Joy Division play... Mm. I don't remember Ian playing guitar live. Did you ever meet them? When they well, were I, I didn't know Ian, um, but um, I got to know all the rest of them. I mean, Hooky and Barney and Stephen, you know, pretty well. I still sort of speak to them, you know, semi-regularly to this yeah. day, really. And, um, you know, I think the, the thing about them was they were kind of, seemed kind of quite normal, really. Yeah. But, but the great thing about Factory, I think the, 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 the thing that Wilson and Savile did, they didn't have photographs of the band on the artwork. They created mm. a real enigma and mystery about who these people were. And when you eventually met them, you thought, all right, there's some lads from yeah, Manchester just normal. You know, and you couldn't be more sort of bluff and unimpressed by yeah. things than Ucky, could you? No, you know, no, I mean, not at um, all. But, um, you know. And so, you know, it must be interesting for them to have their life sort of so catalogued and, yeah. you know, and, and mythologized in a way. And I think, you know, when it was the uh, anniversary of the release of Unknown Pleasures, the, the cover was projected onto Manchester Town Hall, wasn't oh, it? Oh, wow. So it had wow. become just such a part of this city. Yeah, you yeah. Know. it's like the fabric, isn't it? Yeah. So it is great to see that guitar. Really smart. Yeah. You've always produced electronic music. Composed oh, and produced electronic music. Yeah, absolutely. Not songs so much, just sort of like, I don't know what you call just, them, soundtracks? Just bits. Or, yeah, yeah bits, just little yeah. riffs and bits and drums. Because you're not just, a singer, are you? No, no. In fact, this is a very rare outing of you being allowed near a microphone. It is. <laughs> <laughs> And now, of course, we have our musical partnership, Oon, which yeah. is electronic, and there's a lot of, lot of factory influences weaving their way through there, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. It's great, that, because the references to our tunes... Well, when I sit down and make a record, I always think back to standing on the dance floor and listening to the, the kick drum. Because it was a terrible sound. But it was, it was one of those that, that really stuck with you. You said, if I can replicate that really bad sound, then I've kind of done okay. Well, mission accomplished then. So, behind the white guitar is a glass case. You may get strains of the uh, Sex Pistols coming through behind us because <laughs> they're, they're playing there in the background. Um, we were talking about the Pistols. But there's a glass case here with... I, I don't know who keeps all this stuff. So the first exhibit is a handwritten list, presumably by Wilson, 
about um, uh, uh, bans who they might have on Tony Wilson's So It Goes TV series. Oh, wow. On Granada TV. And in fact, the Granada television, the G from the Granada TV sign that used to be on the outside of the building is over there. Yeah, the bright red one. It's in the corner. Grey, isn't it? So, um, say main bands, Buzzcocks, Ian Jury, Jam, Elvis Costello, Blondie, Talking Heads, um, and uh, Cabaret Voltaire, Gang of Four, Pop Group, Joy Division. And so, I think just, they're all still going, aren't they? Most of them. <laughs> so there's just, it's just handwritten there, which is just uh, extraordinary to see that, really. Um, at the bottom of the list are the Desperate Bicycles, who I do remember from <laughs> Manchester. So, and also... There's Granada Television contracts, and so um, these are contracts sent to Rob Gretton for uh, each musician. So this is to Ian Curtis, Esquire, yeah. to appear on the programme, care of Rob Gretton Management, Flat One, Chatfield Road, Chalton, in Manchester. And uh, this is the basic session, 18th of September, 1978, and it's... Um, can you see what he got paid, Ian Curtis, for that? £24.25. £24.25. £24 However, he did get expenses of... A fiver. Of a fiver. <laughs> Which was quite a lot in 78. <laughs> Probably not bad. Um, and uh, next to it is a letter from Rob Gretton. Handwritten letter to Tony. But it says, Dear Tony, <laughs> thanks for the mention on What's On, which was a TV programme he did on Granada Television, yeah. wasn't it? For the last two weeks, we really appreciate it. After all the praise that you gave the EP, I finally persuaded the lads to release it. So it should be in the shops soon. Don't know when. <laughs> not no, not bloody. Anyway, thanks once again. And if you want to get in touch for any reason, please note the new address. And I've now got a telephone. <laughs> And there's a number there, which is great because I remember them saying that Rob, uh, Rob Gretton, he used to manage Joy Division from a payphone, from a call box, didn't he? <laughs> And that you get promoters to come and phone him back at the Here's call box. Here's a phone, yeah. give me a ring. Um, because it was a quite a rarity to have a phone. But, you know, it's so polite, much politer than I remember Rob Gretton being. Totally, and it's a really nice handwriting as well. <laughs> really nice he has got lovely handwriting. And again, I suppose, this is the, the root of factory, isn't it? Do you think that's if, deliberate on the lines? He's written it instead of a cross, it's down. Yeah, he's written it the wrong way on the notepaper, hasn't it? The lines go vertically rather yeah. than across, which is... A, yeah. Um, but I like the fact that he says, if you want to get in touch for any reason, <laughs> and Tony did, and from that, factory was born. Then we've got this. So on that little letter, that's almost the, 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 the acorn from yeah. which the oak tree of factory grew, isn't it? Amazing. One of the reasons that factory is so important to me is when I was in Manchester, um, just at the end of being at university and starting work, so 78, 79, 80, Tony Wilson from factory mm. was just so empowering and enabling and inspirational because he taught us that we didn't have to wait for um, London to give us permission to do yeah, it. We yeah. didn't have to wait for a record deal from London. We didn't have to wait for someone, even if it was John Peel, to play the, pro, uh, the records on the radio. I had my own little radio show by then and I could play the new records on Factory. And he convinced me, him and Richard Boone, who was manager of the Buzzcocks, and yeah. they put out the, um, uh, you know, their own EP. 
um, and spiral scratch, spiral scratch yeah. yeah, on the new hormones label. Mm. And they just seem to be launching a revolution in this city all on their own. And we all joined in. And yeah, it was so yeah. empowering and it was so thrilling just to feel you were a part of that. So we've come to the nine TV screens that greet people as they enter the exhibition. We're uh, meeting Teresa. Hey, Teresa. Hi, lovely to meet you both. Nice to see you too. So um, who are you and what do you do here? <laughs> uh, my name's Teresa McCauley. I'm an exhibitions project manager at the museum and I uh, helped create the exhibition. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, it looks amazing from what we've seen so far. Thank you so, so much. So well done. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, these, these nine screens give an impression of a Manchester that I remember vividly, but anyone under the age of, I don't know, what, 40? Wouldn't recognise this, I don't think. Certainly, and and for us that's really important at the uh, museum, is the Factory Records story is so familiar to so many people, but certainly for me two years ago I didn't know very much about it at all. To give an impression of what Manchester was like at that time, to set it in context, was really important. And this was a newly commissioned video by local artist Owen Davey using archive footage to show what the city was like. I mean, there is open ground and sort of scrubland, isn't there? But then it's a combination of really grim-looking early tower blocks, but also, like sort of semi-demolished and derelict brick buildings that look like they've been there since, like the, 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 nothing's changed since the end of the war almost. And that's it. I mean, the city, you walk around it now and there's so many tall glass buildings yeah. and it's changed immensely in the last 10 years that um, this kind of post-industrial landscape is is almost unimaginable to kind of modern city dweller, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I always used to walk down through the Crescents of Hume, the concrete uh, housing projects, and go and see Joy Division at the Russell Club. And yes. you almost thought, if Joy Division hadn't made that music, you'd sort of heard it inside your head anyway, because <laughs> yeah, it seemed the yeah, perfect yeah. soundtrack to that very alienating urban environment. Exactly, and it's one of the things, I think, that we wanted to get across in the story, is the influence of the city on factory records, their design aesthetic, the sounds that the bands were creating, the kind of context of the city was so important to them this does give you a sort of snapshot of the manchester that factory sprung from let's let's walk on take us to some of the bits that you enjoy the most well i have to say i enjoy the whole exhibition of course yeah (laughs) right all right but But skip the contractual obligation uh, (laughs) chat now and take us to some good bits (laughs) um so i there's just some stories that have come out when we were developing the content that are really nice and this is a very much a living history, you know, as you yeah. know yourselves, like a lot of the people that were involved in Factory are still around and lots of people have opinions on, on this content. So we did a lot of consultation with people, people who were involved and uh, with the Factory story. So in speaking to Peter Saville, he cited... Uh, we have these photographs here of the Royal Exchange Theatre. Yes, yes. Um, which opened in 1976. And he went there as a student, uh, Peter Saville, a graphic designer for Factory, or one of the key designers there. Because for people who don't know, the Royal Exchange Theatre was like an alien spaceship that had landed in the middle of the old Royal Exchange, which where, where they did all the trading and everything. So that's a beautiful old Victorian building with a big glass dome. But under it, they put this steel structure, the Royal Exchange Theatre. So in a sense, you know, that is factory, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So it was very influential on his design style and that kind of 
blend of uh, historic and contemporary design yeah. working together to create something new is something you see throughout factories design aesthetic. Yeah, as you said on the sign here, brutal concrete housing stood alongside Grand Victorian buildings, and that's absolutely how I remember it. So, Teresa, where are we going to go to now? Well, there's a really beautiful poster through here that I'd like to show you, and that's from the Northern Carnival against the Nazis, the Rock Against Racism gig that was in Alexandra Park in 1978. I mean, for me, uh, the poster itself is absolutely gorgeous um, really striking but it's the- black and white isn't it and you've got so it says Northern Carnival and then you've got um, uh, who are the pictures of there there's a Buzzcocks there but the, the bands who were on there were the Fall Steel Pulse John Cooper Clark the Buzzcocks Graham Parker that's Graham Parker there with his sunglasses on oh, okay. um, uh, China Street who I don't remember at all and Exodus, who are a Manchester reggae band. That's the other thing about that time. That time, um, The punks and the reggae bands were real alumni. Yeah, certainly. And, and certainly the kind of attitude that they had there. And Exodus, we've kind of brought this story off the single English Black Boys uh, yeah. that they released on Factory's label, which was kind of speaking out against the police force and how they were treating uh, the black community in Manchester at the time. Yeah. And can you remember how the Rock Against Racism gigs came about? No, go on, tell us. I think it was Eric Clapton speaking. Oh, uh, yes, he said Enoch Powell had some good ideas, didn't he, more or less? Yeah, uh, one of his gigs. And um, so the the kind of rise of these Rock Against Racism gigs across the country um, came out of that. And Exodus as a factory band were involved in being in performing at that and I believe that a lot of uh, Joy Division's early gigs were uh, in support of Rock Against Racism as well. Yeah. yeah. Who keeps all this stuff? How difficult is it to find <laughs> these things? When, I mean, people keep... I'm terrible. I chuck everything away. Well, there were a lot of lenders for this exhibition and the core concept that we started to work with was to get the first 50 items in the factory catalogue on display and I think that was one of the things we wanted to get audiences to understand was that Factory actually catalogued everything like a plumber's merchant might. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And they were really good at kind of keeping those records of what they did. Let me tell you a minute, because I remember this vividly, walking over to the side of the room and there's album sleeves and single sleeves on, on the wall here. And what looks like a sheet of sandpaper. And I remember this vividly because um, this is the sleeve of the first Durity Column album. It's called The Return of the Durity <laughs> Column. And it doesn't say anything on it. It's a sheet of um, sandpaper. And they put this in the racks. And if it was next to other records, it really damaged the records it was next, next to. to. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, I had this, and I remember scratching my own record by taking it out of his own sleeve. But this was the beautiful perversity of Factory, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and it kind of was the point of the record cover. And the idea for it came from one of the situationist texts that you'll find earlier in the exhibition, that it would damage everything that I was next to. We also have an example... And this is a nice thing about Factory, is that they tried to use local suppliers. This is Nailer's Glass Paper, that is a Manchester-based sandpaper producer. So they went to local uh, industrial suppliers and got things from them to make their products. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look back at earlier in the exhibition, you'll find an example of, of their <laughs> yeah. stock sandpaper. It's funny for me, because I had all these records, 
I haven't got any of them anymore. And now they're museum pieces. Well, that's it, isn't if it? Only, <laughs> if only we knew. I made a deal with myself. I've never forgotten this. I made a deal with myself very early on. I thought, if I could work in music... Because you're going to be working for a long time, hopefully, 40 years. Yeah. So it's better if you can do something you enjoy and you're interested in. And I made a deal with myself and I thought, well, if I could do a job I enjoyed and maybe afford a semi-detached house and a little hatchback car, I would sell for that. I mean, now getting a hatchback car and a semi-detached house costs you about £2 million, doesn't it? But <laughs> in those days, it was all right. And, so, and, and that was the deal I made with myself, really, that I wouldn't chase money. Yeah, um, and I would play in bands in my spare time, and I would have a job with music. And so I started at Piccadilly Radio in Manchester um, as a as a trainee producer on two thousand three hundred pounds a year. Um, wow. And um, I've never changed that thought process, but it's worked out. Well, I did. I definitely wanted to be in a big band. I wanted music to be my career, and everything else I've done has been second best, really. Um, and it's turned out okay, you know. And now I wouldn't like to be relying on music. It's so difficult to make money. It is from being a musician, isn't it? And I think, in yeah. some ways, unless you're going to be really successful as a musician, music is the best possible hobby you could have. But in some ways, one of the worst jobs, isn't it? But yeah. did, you, did, you, did you have aspirations to be a professional musician? Because you work in, in logistics. I do. I've worked in logistics because I was kind of fell into it, you know, when you leave school and you yeah. don't know what to do. Yeah. But, and I, but I was really always into sort of interested in how electronic music was made right from school, right from the first moment I walked into the secondary school and I heard Kraftwerk on, on the radio and, I, and it kind of, kind of hooked me in. The one thing I love is playing live and hearing the sounds I create electronically um, in different environments. Like we've recently supported Turing Breaks at Manchester Cathedral and to hear the same song we've played on many different venues but in that particular venue where it was so cavernous it sounded, it sounded like a totally different record and, and I love doing that. So the exhibition kind of covers everything that came before the Hacienda, yeah. um, but Ben Kelly, who uh, designed the Hacienda, uh, was the designer for the exhibition, so that was very exciting for us to work with him. Great. And, of course, we wanted to get that in here, and he's designed the space as you exit the exhibition to look like the Hacienda. So I think if you weren't there, it's a very beautiful space, but if you were there, it's probably quite evocative. Well, I mean, the immediate thing that strikes you is these kind of black and white pillars, like what would you call these, bollards? Bollards, bollards yeah. yeah. You know, in fact, the building, Paul, as we say, the, the, the building, the sort of fabric of the building, the girders, that does lend to the effect of recreating the Hacienda a bit, doesn't it? It does. It's... Uh, it's pretty cold as well, you know? <laughs> so it's got everything, a 4D exhibition, you could say. We have say. got four layers on, haven't we? we but we've got the big girders of the, of the structure of the, of the warehouse where the Science and Industry Museum is located. We've also got, um, um, I would call these lights pycans. Before it all went LED, they were yeah. like these old... They That's were, what they are, yeah. Is it pycans? Yeah, authentic. <laughs> right, they are. They, if you were performing under those, they were really hot, <laughs> which in the Hacienda was welcome. <laughs> and then along one side, we've got a sort of raised area, which is like you're stepping onto the dance floor. There's black and white bollards and black and yellow chevrons running down the bottom of it and, yeah. and, and mirrors in the background. Of course, to recreate the Hacienda... 
You need a huge... It was gigantic, wasn't it? Yeah. We didn't have that much space, unfortunately. No, no. I mean, it was a really massive, cavernous space it with was. a balcony, wasn't it? And it yeah. 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 I remember a couple of years ago, my brother was 15. He was a resident DJ at the Haas. And we, at the time, Chris Hughes, good friend of ours, he had a documentary called Do You On The Dance Floor? And he gave my brother a piece of the dance floor. So for his 50th, we've got a picture of us all like, putting our feet on the dance floor. Awesome. One last time. <laughs> And, and, and you met your missus, did you? I met, I did, I met, I met the good lady, the only girl I've ever met at a nightclub. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it stuck. So, yeah. and it closed, the club closed down a year later, so what's that telling us? <laughs> <laughs> I, I it has done its job. I it's done to its the, job. The, there used to be a uh, little bar downstairs called the Gay Traitor Bar. Oh, yeah, and, like, Kim it, Philby. It, 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 Kim Philby. And the early days when I went, because it was so empty, it was so cold, the drinks were so expensive and the sound was so bad, um, and this was way before it became the celebrated dance floor experience. And quite often we'd all just go down there and sort of huddle together for warmth. <laughs> and in fact, I recorded a programme down in the Gay Traitor um, about uh, Manchester Music. It was called Third Summer because it was people were talking about the third summer of love at uh, that yes. time, which Tony Wilson presented. And so I was producing that in the Gay Traitor Bar. <laughs> at, the, at the hacienda, so we were the, the, these bollards sort of things. They were they were were they on the edge of the dance floor? On the edge the of the hacienda. dance floor. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I remember getting my hair cut in the hacienda. Really? You get, they, had a, they had a hairdressers in there. Andrew they, Berry. Was it? Andrew Berry. Oh, there you was go. Was the hairdresser? He was a big believe, mate of Johnny Mars. I believe there was a cafe or like a cafe in there, like S a little. Food Suzanne area. Robinson, who I'm good friends with on Facebook. Yeah, and you could yeah. get yourself a baked potato while you were dancing the do. night away. Is that? You can Honestly, baked potato. I don't remember that. I think that must have come later. When I went down there, I remember going to see Sandy Shaw there, and it was freezing cold and the sound was terrible. A baked potato would have improved my evening so <laughs> much. That would have been incredible. Why don't more clubs do baked potatoes? Oh, I don't know. It sounds That's wonderful, insane, doesn't, doesn't it? it? <laughs> I might still be going out. If it was <laughs> Get a baked potato. Yeah, that would be lovely. I'm surprised they didn't have a um, factory catalogue baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> catalogue number for the first baked potato. Probably so, wouldn't have dated well. But, but yeah. no, it is, it, it is evocative. It does, it does bring back memories. It's, it's so does. well done. So we've come back down from the factory exhibition, back into the uh, main hall, yeah. stood with the Rolls-Royce behind us. Mm -hmm. um, and this is called Revolution Manchester. This is a permanent exhibition here. Do is you it know all free? <laughs> yeah, this is part of the free oh, collections. Yeah, yeah. But this is scientists and people from this part of the world who sort of had amazing ideas and encouraged breakthrough. Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. Visionaries who managed the computer age. Charles Babbage, he died in 1871. Wow. He was a mathematician, and he recognised the potential for machines to make calculations. Yeah. Oh, wow. and, uh, and Ada Lovelace suggested the machine might use numbers to represent not just quantities, but symbols, letters, and yeah. musical notes. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And she died in 1852. How ahead of the curve were they? And then um, Ernest Rutherford... Do you know Ernest Rutherford? I don't know much about Ernest Rutherford at all, apart from he's got something to do with nuclear physics. Yeah, he split the atom. Oh, wow. At Manchester University. Um, he came to, uh, yeah, he's totes legend, obviously. Yeah. You know, and of course Alan Turing. 
1954, you know. Tragic end to his life after so much amazing discovery and uh, innovation. But, yeah. you know, I mean, his, uh, his reputation is absolutely quite absolutely rightly celebrated cemented, now, isn't it? He was tried um, and imprisoned at the courts and the prison in Nutsford, the town where we live. Was he? Yeah, in the courthouse there that's I now genuinely a hotel. didn't know that. Yeah. I think, you know, the measure of any society is like what culture it provides for nothing to yeah. its people. What opportunities for learning and that sense of wonder, particularly in children. I mean, you know, my kids have, have all grown up going to museums. And in fact, my grandchildren now, you know, there's certainly Esme, who's just turned 10, who's a sponge for knowledge. She loves going and she like, there'd be a thousand questions about everything. Well, yeah, why was yeah, there a yeah. train here? Well, you know, why? Oh, I didn't realise. So they dug the sewers. And, and also great works of art, because I I do think that, like, um, you do get something by standing in front of a painting that you don't get totally. by looking at a reproduction of it. These are the actual brush strokes. This is the actual modus operandi that went into making it. You know, I yeah. mean, I can understand why people queue to stand in front of the Mona Lisa in a way, mm. you know, to see the actual thing, you know, one of the world's most famous paintings, you know. And I think that, that the idea that this is not for the elite, that this isn't for some... I mean, obviously, you have to pay for some museums mm. and some exhibitions charge an entry fee because it costs a lot of money to put on and everything. But you still can go to... To the, you know the Tate Modern or the VNA or the Natural History yeah, Museum, you yeah. can still go to these things, yeah. and anybody can go. And and I just, it just think takes that that's effort, wonderful. It? it just takes effort, and you just you, you know, no one can open your mind for you. But at least if no. you decide to open your mind, it's great that there are places that you can go. Computer age, it says over there, 1948. So um, um, should we wander over yeah, and uh, meet to. these guys who I think are. Uh, are, are, are volunteers and they can show us how this operates. Then yeah. we meet uh, Anthony and Tim. Guys, you're, you're standing in front of um, a bewildering array of racks of equipment. What is it? It's a computer. Right. It's a working replica that's running a program as we speak. Uh, and it's a working replica of what you, we often call the world's first proper computer. Right. But specifically, the world's first stored program computer. Right. And that phrase means it's the world's first machine to work the way all computers have worked since. Right. So the, the machine you have in your pocket, your smartphone, your PC, your desktop, they all work following this principle. Was this called Baby? Yes. That was it. That's kind of its nickname. Its full name was the Small Scale Experimental Machine. Uh, and baby is a lot easier to say, really. Right, yeah. And, uh, and was this invented, was this created in Manchester? It was, yes. Yeah. So who did it? Uh, professors uh, Williams and Kilburn at Manchester University. Um, and they developed this um, after the war. It was developed because they had an idea about how you could store electronic data using one of those glowing green cathode ray tubes. Yeah. Um, and they demonstrated it would do that, but... To be uh, credible, they really needed a computer to put it into to demonstrate it would work in a computer. And they didn't have one, so they built this. Can you tell me what, what we're looking at then? It just looks so, like a lot so of things. So we have things. seven racks, metal racks, and each rack is about seven feet high, and in total they're about 17 feet wide. And each rack is covered in complex electronic circuitry 
but this is 1940s electronics, so there are no transistors or silicon chips in view. Instead, we have all of these black or silver metal canisters yeah. that people usually think are batteries, right. but they're vacuum tubes or valves, which is how you made electronic circuitry up until the 50s. And a lot of people will have seen these if they had taken apart an old telly when they were young, they'd see these things inside. So we have all these metal canisters and little glass thingamajigs on the front and lots of resistors and capacitors and at the back is a bewildering rat's nest of wiring. Sure it is. And right in the centre of all that is a round six inch wide cathode ray tube or very old fashioned television display tube. And on there is a, a glowing green pattern of dots and dashes and that's, that's the computer, that's all you get. So people often say, is that all? That whole machine just for that little pattern, and that's what you get is just that little pattern. So, guys, can we see it running? Yes, absolutely, we'll uh, boot it up for you. Brilliant. And we can run the very first programme they ever wrote for it, which we have. Yeah, and which is what? Which is a programme to calculate the highest factor of a number. Okay. And this was the first program they ever wrote and the first program that ran successfully on June the 21st, 1948, right. which said the machine works. And the machine has a facility to make a noise, Good. which is actually a useful feature back in the day. And we turned it on. So I'm going to run this program now. Right. And it takes about 30 seconds. And the answer we're looking for is 43. Okay. And the program has a characteristic noise, which you will hear now. Sample that, Paul. Autobahn. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Sounds a little bit like Kraftwerk. It sounds like Autobahn. I was just saying we should sample that. We need to, you need to record that on your phone and put it in a track, that. <laughs> Tim Anthony, it's been an, it's been an education, and I, I, and I love your enthusiasm. Dare I say, love for the machinery. So great to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. So that's the end of our visit. Really good. Yeah. Really yeah. good. Not been for a long time either of us. No. So it was nice to come back. But I mean, I don't know. It just sort of makes me love Manchester even more, don't you think? Yeah, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. You know, especially the, the, the factory, um, Hacienda thing, because I'm really close to that, and seeing a little letter from Rob Gretton to Tony Wilson thanking him, that was really good. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, being at the Science and Industry Museum, it just makes me think and appreciate that, that, that Tony Wilson and Factory Records, it was sort of in a long line of innovators and people who dared to dream in Manchester yeah, and invent computers yeah. and things, you know. And yeah. so they were very aware of Manchester's heritage and, and, yeah. and the things that it had achieved. So I think that it's appropriate that the factory exhibition is here in the Museum of Science and Industry because I know Tony would feel that he was carrying on a tradition. He was doing things that were new, but he was following on other innovators and revolutionaries um, I love the I love the idea. I think that what, what I love most, I think, is that this place is a celebration of ideas. Yeah, a celebration of people who dared to dream that they could change things and did it and did it. 
And that's it. Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum with me, Mark Radcliffe. And me, Paul Langley, at the Science and Industry Museum here in Manchester. And if you like this episode of the podcast, and why wouldn't you, frankly, compared to a load of the rubbish that's out there, this was brilliant, then please rate, subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, you can show your love for museums with a National Art Pass. It gives you great benefits at hundreds of venues while raising money to support them. What he said.